Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 13th, 2012. <laughs> Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is a program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which: help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we help teach you to do the discerning work to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Part of that task requires you to, well, compare definitions. One of the things that you find over and again when you're dealing with people who hold to a different theology or hold to theological practices that are dangerous is that oftentimes the first thing you got to do is, well, get the definitions out on the table because sometimes things get cleared up by uh, taking a hard look at definitions. And sometimes Things actually only get worse when you compare definitions because over and again what you find is is that people who hold to erroneous theologies, bad practices, uh, bad methodologies, and are generally wreaking havoc, uh, that uh, over and again you can see that what they've done is they've taken a word and poured its meaning out, uh, its native meaning out or its biblical meaning out, or and then poured into it. Um, some new definition, and so if sometimes I, I think it's helpful if you if you were to just kind of by way of metaphor, think of each theological word as as uh, as a well as made of glass, like a jar or you know some kind of a water container. Yeah, you, you ever you ever seen some of those really creative funky glasses where you know, and I'm talking like. You know, you know, like a glass jar or a pitcher or something like that. And so, you know, if you see the word Jesus, okay, think of the word, you know, theologically as as a word that is, well, it's made out of glass and can hold a liquid. 
And when the biblical meaning is poured into the word, you know that you've got the right meaning of Jesus. But heretics always, what they try to do is they actually take the, the biblical definition of Jesus and they'll pour it out and, you know, throw it in the sink and let it drain out. And then while you're not looking, they'll take a foreign um, liquid, pour it into the glass and do their, well, their darndest best to try to uh, you know to imitate the right color and 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 liquid you know texture if you would viscosity of uh, of the liquid in order to pass it off as oh yeah I believe in Jesus and then you look, take a look at the definition and you go boy the color seems off you know hang and you shake it and you, it it doesn't quite have the same weight and viscosity to it There's, you're you sure that's the biblical Jesus yes yeah, you got to do that and so you know part of the theological apologetic discernment doctrinal task is comparing definitions so one of the things we're going to be doing today is um, we're going to be uh, I'm going to be talking about a a well today's uh topic du jour now does that that you know what see here's the deal my daughter is she's uh, second year in uh, taking french in high school and i think she would tell me that was redundant um because <laughs> cuz i think uh, du jour means of the day so when i said today's topic du jour yeah that shit that's i'm pretty sure she would say dad it's redundant you don't need you just need to say topic du jour you don't need to say today's topic du jour because that's like yeah anyway uh, it, it has to do with the, the topic of Lectio Divina. So today's topic du jour, notice the redundancy, is uh, is Lectio Divina because uh, I, w I received an email from somebody who was rather alarmed uh, at the latest edition, the April edition of the Lutheran Reporter, which is an official LCMS publication, had an article by a, uh, for, uh, not Fort Wayne, but uh, St. Louis Seminary professor, uh, Dr. Harting, and uh, he, sadly, um, recommended something really not so good. Um, and it's like the, the bad practice of Lectio Divina. We've covered the topic here. And so I put a blog post together, linked to it on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, Pastor Paul McCain of uh, Concordia Publishing House was actually kind enough to uh, come onto my Facebook wall and uh, onto my blog to, you know, to offer... An alternative view, well, a reformed, um, a cleaned up uh, Lectio Divina, and which I thought is kind of an interesting idea, um, you know, because Lectio Divina without the mysticism isn't Lectio Divina anymore. It's something different. But um, you know, over and you know, it, it's over and again you you find that uh, part of you know the the um, the zeitgeist, the uh, the project of Lutheranism, is not to revolt against everything, but to reform it. And so, you know, Luther being a, re a reformer, so the question lies: is is it possible to reform, to evang ev evangelicalize, uh, to clean up and and get rid of lectio divina? Well, what happens is it becomes a completely different practice with a different focus and a different, um, you know, uh, you know, the uh, use of scripture than. Uh, the mystics use, and so you know you, that leads to the question: Can can you clean up lectio divina? Is it helpful to, to to keep the term when you've completely changed what it is? Um, you know, I I I'm of the opinion that I don't think that uh, it's necessarily the wisest thing to do to try to you know to save the phrase lectio divina when you completely have altered, changed everything about it. Um, because I think it creates confusion, and so what you know, and and what we're, so we're going to talk a little bit about the lectio divina brouhaha or kerfuffle, 
<clears throat> today on uh, Fighting for the Faith, and then we're going to go back down under and continue uh, uh, doing some reviewing of what's been going on down there at the Presence Conference. And got to got to tell you, you know, uh, Jake Elliott uh, has done some fine work in getting this uh, information to us, and I'm passing it along to you. I've got audio of a video of Stephen Furtick shilling, you know, uh, you know, prosperity pimping, if you would. I think that's the phrase that Jake Elliott was using. Uh, for uh, Phil Pringle down there at the Presence Conference, and it's really bad. And furthermore, we've uh, I'm going to be playing the uh, audio from uh, a, a video segment where they are, where Phil Pringle is basically getting people geared up to give for a miracle offering. Give money, and you'll receive a miracle. It's, I mean, it is so, so blatantly obvious and just terrible as to how they are you know fleecing the people attending the the presence conference and using god as the pretense for it it's it's it it, it i don't even want to say it borders on criminal i i think it's flat out criminal i can't see that this is not a crime uh in the kingdom of god what these uh, men are doing uh, stephen furtick and phil pringle both and so we're going to be doing that and then in hour number 2 we've got our final good uh, Easter sermon, one that was recommended by Pastor Charmley, a friend of his, uh, preached this, and so uh, we'll be listening to that in hour number two. So, you know, make yourself comfortable, set in. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, and of course, the standard uh, listener guidelines apply. You know, that being, you know, if you want to listen while enjoying adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, drunkenness is a sin. Um, a fuzzy bunny slippers, just so you know, they do enhance your listener experience. And I know this from personal experience and, uh, you know, but make yourself comfortable. We're going to just dive right in here. Here we go. From the Lutheran reporter. Now the article, I don't think has a headline. It's actually just a segment, a regular segment there at the uh, Lutheran reporter from the pressure points section from the April 2012 edition written by Dr. Uh, Bruce Harting of the uh, St. Louis Seminary there in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, just so you know, if you were to read, you can find this at uh, reporter.lcms.org forward slash pages slash our page dot ASP question mark nav ID equals one nine eight three four if you if you were to just go to the reporter.lcms.org and look for the uh, april 2012 edition online and then go to the section called pressure points you should be able to find this rather easily and if you know i put the website address to you although it's complicated there in the audio so that it's in the podcast if you wanted to take the time to step through it now so that you understand what happens in this particular um segment of the uh of the lutheran reporter uh, there are readers who respond or say things, and Dr. Harting reacts to or adds to or corrects their comments. That's kind of what he does here. And so it's it's almost like a, 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 a listener-reader response segment there at the uh, Lutheran Reporter. And so I'm not going to read the entire article. I'm going to go down to the relevant part uh, that has to do where he's talking about the Lectio Divina. We got some pretty you know, significant issues here. Um, so uh, the reader to the reporter writes to Dr. Harding and says, I have prayed in the Lectio 
Divina process for a number of years. This involves reading a scriptural text, focusing on a particular word or cluster in the text, meditating on the text, prayer in response to the text, and silent resting as the meaning of the text really impacts you. Following this is the development of, of how all this moves into my life. This is the classic Lectio Meditatio Oratio Contemplatio. I always mess these up. I always think of like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I read these. <clears throat> Sorry. And for some, the Operatio. Uh, most important for me is that, listen, this is kind of the, the key kicker sentence here. Most important for me is that this is not so much reading the scripture to gain more factual knowledge about what is in them, but rather the use of the scriptures in a way that forms and changes me. See, that sentence right there should key you in here that there's there's some serious problems here. This is not a proper understanding of prayer, nor does it reflect a proper use of scripture. In fact, it's clear by what this writer wrote, uh, this reader wrote uh, here that they're using the biblical text as a springboard to getting a direct revelation or direct uh, experience of God that is deeper than the factual knowledge. Does that make sense? So, uh, you know, this is, you know, if if you're confused as to why this is bad, strongly recommend that you go back into the January 2012 archives of Fighting for the Faith, where I interviewed uh, the Reverend uh, Jeff Ware uh, regarding Lectio Divina. There's, there's some very serious problems here. Now, Here's the deal. Um, I'm not out of school to 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 state this. Um, my expectation of a professor at the St. Louis Seminary uh, is that th- that he should have identified the problems here and corrected. The problem is is that Dr. Harding uh, didn't correct this reader, but actually kind of piled on and pointed the reader even deeper into their error in the use of this practice. So here's what Dr. Harding wrote. He says, um, this is a process, uh, talking about Lectio Divina, dating back to the ancient church. It focuses on a deeper reflection on the scripture with specific application to one's personal formation. If if our readers wish to consider this method, one reading to seek, as he's recommending a book here, is the book Lectio Divina, Contemplative Awakenings and Awareness by Christine Walters Paintner and uh, Lucy uh, Wincoop from Paulus Press. For both theory and practical application, this is a venerable method of spiritual reflection and formation and support. And I happen to be somewhat familiar with Christine Walter Paintner's um, uh, books and stuff on, well, Lectio Divina and other things. But uh, the point is this, is that um, no... Lutheran theologian who who considers himself to be uh, in you know in accord with or in concord with the confessions of the Lutheran Church as found in the Book of Concord has any business recommending Paintner for anything? Okay, um, yeah. In fact, let me read to you uh, Paintner's bio. Okay, Th- this is where the problem is. Christine Walters Paintner is is the online abbess at abbeyofthearts.com, a virtual monastery without walls offering a variety of classes in contemplative practice and creative expression 
and the author of six books on spirituality, contemplative practice, and creative expression. She is a Benedictine oblate, writer, artist, spiritual director, retreat facilitator, and teacher. Her fields of expertise include Christian spiritual practices, monastic spirituality, and the expressive arts. Christine earned her Ph.D. in Christian spirituality from the graduate theological union in Berkeley and her professional status as registered expressive arts consultant and educator from the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. Um, so, we, yeah, we got a problem here, is, and that is this. Why is the Reverend Dr. Bruce Harding of uh, Concordia Seminary St. Louis offering, recommending, promoting um, the works of Christine Walters Paintner? Uh, that doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, it's rather troubling. Let me read a little bit more here. Um, from the website, the uh, story circle book reviews.org, Pastor uh, Jervis Nicholas Ch Edward Charmley, by the way, was kind enough to uh, dig these references up for me and post them on my Facebook wall. And I want to make sure that uh, everybody knows that he really helped in me getting to these quotes quickly. But uh, somebody writing about um, uh, Painter's book, The Lectio Divina and the Sacred Arts, Transforming Words and Images into Heart-Centered Prayer, that's one of her books, um, says this, this is a book review. Lectio Divina essentially means divine reading of sacred texts during which we, quote, enter into an encounter with God, end quote. While the ancient practice has its roots in Judaism, Walter's Paintner refers to the scriptures of different religious tradition, traditions, including Hebrew, Christian, and the Quran throughout her book. There are many passages from which to choose for your own practice. Uh, Paintner invites an exploration of Lectio Divina in part one of her book, Listen with the Ear of Our Heart. Is <laughs> Really? Listen, I had no idea my ear, my heart had ears. I So... <clears throat> So pay, <laughs> this is one of those silly, I mean, this is this again, spiritual absurdity. Um, yeah, the sentence means nothing. Listen with the ear of your heart. Um, uh, so painter invites an exploration of Lectio Divina in part one of her book. Listen with the ear of your heart is uh, the central movement of Lectio Divina. And one of the rules of St. Benedict, his wisdom is very valuable to life in the 21st century when we would be well advised to move mindfully through our days, remembering everything, objects and people as sacred. In part two, the four movements of Lectio Divina are fully described chapter by chapter. They are Lectio's call to awaken to the divine, Meditatio's welcoming with all senses, hearing Oratio's call of the spirit, and resting in Contemplatio's stillness and silence. Mm-hmm, yeah, Lectio's call to awaken to the divine. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's significant to note that in Roman Catholic mysticism, monastic mysticism, uh, it is a very common thread within contemplative mystics that the thing that you're awakening to is not the divinity outside of you, but to the divinity that you are, the divinity within. Again, I would point you to uh, the uh, the segment that we did on Fighting for the Faith uh, regarding um, centering prayer. Look, Just type it into the search box there and you'll find it. Anyway, each of our four movements is a process of con a contemplative unfolding for which the author has her own terms, shimmering, 
<laughs> savoring and stirring, summoning, summoning and serving, and slowing and stilling. She has done so well in organizing the information of a practice that is not meant to be linear and is cre- creating examples for contemplation that are inviting and peaceful. Um, from uh, Christine Walters Paintner's own website, The Abbey of the Arts, um, where she describes Lectio Divina as a life practice, um, she says, when I was first introduced to the practice of Lectio Divina many years ago, I felt an opening inside of me, as if I was being met right where I was. I discovered in the this ancient way of praying a mirror of my own inner movements and longing for contemplative depth. I felt supported in a way of savoring life and listening deeply for the voice of the Spirit moving through sacred texts and the world. Lectio Divina has four movements or stages to it which invite us into a place of savoring life and our experience and to discover God's invitation to us in the midst of that savoring. And here's the section on shimmering. The first movement is to read the sacred text and listen for a word that shimmers or catches my attention. Shimmers. Yeah, so shimmering. Okay, yeah. I do this as I sit to pray each morning with my scripture reading, but also as I move through the day, I find that there are moments that shimmer forth. A friend offers me an unexpected insight. I gaze upon my sweetly sleeping dog. I go for a long walk and find the gathering of crows cawing stir something in my heart. So that's a shimmering. Okay, yeah, crows don't necessarily, I don't ever see them as shimmering. Anyway, my husband reaches for my hand, and in that moment I feel so deeply loved. We all have these shimmering moments calling to us each day if we pay attention. Through Lectio, I cultivated the capacity to notice these and honor them as important and sacred. Um, yeah, the this is the talk of a Roman Catholic mystic. This is not compatible with biblical Christianity, the Lutheran confessions, the you know the Reformation understanding of prayer. Nor is it compatible with what you know with the way even Luther uh, instructed the, the his barber to uh, you know to pray. Um, this is something completely different. This is mysticism. This is not a devotional reading of the biblical text. Now, if you want to understand more in depth how Lutherans have reformed the so-called practice and tried to evangelicalize it, uh, Concordia Publishing House offers a book by John Kleinig entitled Grace Upon Grace. Now, it uses the term Lectio Divina, but it's very clear, like from the opening paragraphs, that what's being described there is like as far as the east is from the west than what um, the abbess uh, Christine Walters Paintner is uh, talking about in shimmering and savoring and all this kind of stuff. So this leads to the question: Why, why is a conf- you know a, a Lutheran professor at Concordia Theological Seminary? pointing to, referencing, recommending the works of a Roman Catholic mystic like Paintner. There's something seriously, seriously off and wrong here, and this needs to be addressed. Paintner's Lectio Divina is not compatible, not compatible with biblical Christianity. This is something very different, and it uses the biblical text as a springboard into a mystical experience rather than 
than engaging the text by what it says and asking the all-important question, how then does this apply to me? This is something completely different. This is not a devotional reading of the text. And so uh, we've, got, we've got a problem here. And uh, I think uh, Pastor McCain from CPH said it right when he said, why do I feel like there's a letter to the editor coming for the folks over there at the reporter? And um, it, it may be that that's exactly what's going to end up happening. All right, um, real quick, before we go to our first break, just a quick little uh, thing from the Pyromaniacs blog, worth noting. Uh, the name of the headline is The Church's Most Dangerous Enemies. The Church's Most Dangerous Enemies by Phil Johnson. Phil Johnson writes, he says, and by the way, this is an excerpt from some uh, a longer article that he wrote. But he writes, the most dangerous adversaries of biblical truth today are not government policies that undermine our values, not secular beliefs that attack our confessions of faith, not even atheists who deny our God. It is my conviction that the worst, most persistent hindrances to the advance of the gospel today are worldly churches and hireling shepherds who trivialize Christianity. This is not a new problem, and it's no exaggeration to portray such people as enemies of the gospel. There were men just like that vying for influence even in the apostolic times in the very earliest churches. In Philippians 3, 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul wrote, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. One of the chief characteristics of the New Testament cites about these enemies of the cross, enemies of authentic grace, was that they set their minds on earthly things. Philippians 3.19. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Jude verse 4. They twisted the idea of Christian liberty into an opportunity to gratify the flesh. They used their freedom as a cover-up for evil. 1 Peter 2.16. In short, they were carnal, worldly men who twisted the idea of Christian liberty into an excuse for self-indulgence. In the process, they trivialized the cross, corrupted the idea of grace, perverted the gospel, and none of the apostles were squeamish when it came to calling them out. Well said. Well said. That was worth passing along. Okay, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to be going back to Australia, and uh, we got a Stephen Furtick update and a Phil Pringle update from the uh, the Fleece-a-thon that's uh, become known as Presence 2012. You're not going to want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Flying Circus Church. 
thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. What are you You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, mysticism, well, it begins with mist, focuses on I, and causes schism. You know, so you want to stay away from that stuff. It's a Kurt Markworth uh, quote. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 Three eight. Now, we're going to be doing a Stephen Furtick update. Now, normally I play Carly Simon's You're So Vain and then sing along with it just to torture the song. However, um, we've had uh, a listener write some lyrics, and I put it out there that if anyone wanted to you know, record it karaoke style, well, they can. I'd be happy to play it. And I think this is the first time we've done a Furtick update since uh, offering, you know, since I've put that out there. And so far, I, to my knowledge, I've only had one person you know, send in their MP3 recording. So I got to tell you this, okay? Um, if <laughs> if you would, if you think you can do better, I look forward to getting your MP3 at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. But uh, that being the case, this being the first entry in this, um, I will delight your ears with our first entry. Strategically cut to the new style that Bieber was making hard. You had one eye on the camera as you watched the crowd applaud. And all the pastors dream that they'll be your mentor, they'll be your mentor, and you're so vain. Now, do it now. You probably think the Bible's about you. You're, You're so, so vain. <laughs> I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you? Don't you? Well, you 
ago When I was just a young sheep Well, you said you were made to serve And my tithe was all you need But you twisted up the Bible so much And no one said a peep I was in fear then I heard the real gospel I heard the real gospel and you're so vain oh yeah you probably think the bible's about you you're so vain i bet you think the bible's about you don't you don't you don't you you're so So that's the first uh, installment that I ever see. Now, if you if you think that you can do better, I, I would love to play your rendition of this uh, of this on the air. And uh, you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com if you need the lyrics. And that's where you would send the MP3. MP3. By the way, that uh, was Edgar. I'm not sure which town Edgar is from, but Edgar was the uh, the first to uh, send us his own karaoke rendition of that. So that kicks off our next segment here, a, a Stephen Furtick segment. And this is going to be audio of Stephen Furtick from day three of the Presence Conference. Uh, well, engaging in prosperity pimping. Yeah, listen closely. Here we go. And praise the Lord, everybody. And praise the Lord, everybody. Thank you, Pastor Phil, Pastor Chris, for the honor to receive the offering. It is a great honor uh, to give you the opportunity uh, to invest in something that is so special. This is a special family. So this is Stephen Furtick preparing the folks so that they can take the offering. I'm uh, I'm around a lot of stuff, but then, man, what you guys are a part of here is special. Sometimes you need somebody that's kind of from the outside. I hope I'm not considered an outsider at the end of our time together, but somebody who's who's new to it. Um, to come in and just tell you real quickly that it's special. I want you to take out the uh, offering card, please. Everybody take it out, even if you're not giving anything. It'll make you look good. Um, and I'll give you something to do with it as well. So, he didn't tell me I was going to get the chance to receive the offering till not long ago, so set your expectations accordingly. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take uh, three minutes, try to do this in three minutes. And so I started thinking about Elisha. My brother last night talked about Elijah. I like Elisha better. I don't know if it's biblical to prefer one character over another. I named my son after Elijah, but then I, I wrote a book about Elisha. He did twice as many recorded miracles, and yet he doesn't get the street cred. I'm trying to get Elisha some street cred because I think he's um, fantastic. And uh, I was thinking about this miracle that has always meant a lot to me from a leadership level. And God just showed me something 
I don't know, just a framework for it that I hadn't quite seen before. And I want to show it to you. So if you've got your card out, I'm going to pose two questions to you. And hopefully you're preparing your offering if you came in prepared to give or if, if the Lord's already put a specific amount on your heart. Those of you watching online, you can also go ahead and begin to, to enter your donation. But um, I thought about how at this point of the conference, a lot of you are, are given out in some sense. It took you a lot of what you had to get here uh, financially in terms of your resources and all of that. And so it's challenging. You know, a lot of you are, are coming for the first night. I understand that too, a little bit of everything. But uh, some of you men, you gave very sacrificially and, and your faith is stretched from what you gave in the miracle offering today, which I enjoyed that word so much that Pastor Phil brought it, challenged me. By the way, man, Lord told me to give you $7,000 for your Brooklyn church. It's our seventh year of ministry uh, at Elevation Church. We'll celebrate our, our seven-year anniversary in February. So anyway, it's not a lot, but for us at our beginning stages, that would have made a difference. And I just felt that on my heart. But So we're going to obey the Lord in that and pray that God will bless you with supernatural results. That you will see ministry happen at the speed of God. So, I was thinking about that, how a lot of you are at that place in your journey. It's our seventh. Man, God talks to Stephen Furtick a lot, don't you think? Seventh year of ministry. Of course, we know that seven in the Bible represents completion and fulfillment and all of that. And I hope that doesn't mean that we're done, our church. But, but we've seen some great things. Well, I've used this passage a lot in 2 Kings 4 about the widow and the oil. Uh, how many of you know a little bit about that passage? I'll skip the stuff you already know, but it says that the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. Everybody say, that's bad. Tell your neighbor, that's bad. That ain't like I'm not going to get the new purse or I'll be able to upgrade the iPad. I'm going to have to wait two months till it, the price drops. It's bad. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Everybody say, that's worse. Well, I mean, some of y'all are like, and my boys, the way they act right now, I got a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. That doesn't sound that bad to me. If somebody come take my boys for a little while, I'm in a hurry. I'm, I'm taking too long. But Elisha replied to her, here's the question, how can I help you? Which suggests that he's going to step in and assist her. <laughs> Elisha has this subversive way of, of, of enabling people, though. He says, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Very common question. People use it to teach leadership all the time. And so she says, I have nothing there at all except a little oil. And so I've used that to teach that God is in your exception, and I'm sure you've heard about that before. That was for somebody who feels like they've already given at a level that's as high as you can give. But God said, go back and look again tonight and see if there's another sacrifice he wants you to make. It's a lot quieter than every other session I've done. You didn't tell me the offering was like this. Oh, man, this is horrible. Second Kings chapter 4, I want to point out the obvious problem with how he's mishandling this text. 
2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Now the wife of the sons of the prophet cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but, his, but the creditors have come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty the vessels, and not too few. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured. They brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Okay. So here's the question I have for you. Um, What was Elisha's portion of the oil that she received, had, and sold? Okay, in order for this to somehow apply to the tithe, by the way, this is not a passage about tithing, offering, or anything else. This passage has absolutely nothing. Zip, zero, nada, nunca, nadie, whatever you want to say, whatever language. This has nothing to do with tithing, period. This isn't a metaphor for tithing. This has nothing to do with tithing. This has nothing at all whatsoever. So I ask the question, what is Elisha's portion of the oil. Okay. Let me read again portions of it very carefully. Okay. Uh, The wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. You know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditors have come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. Okay. Notice he says, Tell me what you have in the house. Did Elisha ask for any of it? Did he say, now give me that and then God will provide for you? Not at all. And she said, well, your servant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty the vessels and not too few. Did he say, give me the oil? And then God will provide? No, he didn't. At During this entire time, that oil that this widow possessed, that she had, right? Did she ever lose possession of it for a minute? Was she told to give it to Elisha? Not at all. How much of the money that she sold the oil for did she end up having to give to Elisha? Answer, Not one red cent. Stephen Furtick is prosperity pimping here, priming the financial pump for Phil Pringle and the Presence Conference. And he's doing it by mangling God's word. Like I said, this passage has nothing to do with tithing. It doesn't teach a tithing principle, period. Got quiet on the offering, but there's there's a sense in which we pray, God take me to a higher level, 
And there's a, there's a sense in which God says, well, then you dig a little deeper and I'll take you a little higher. You want to go higher, dig deeper, and I'll raise you up to another level. I want to go to another level. God says, well, go ahead and, and take it there. So, so he says, what do you have in your house? But then it's great how in, the, in that miracle, God pours out a supernatural supply of oil, and, and, and it pays off our debts, and it, and it even overflows. And that's going to happen for somebody because of your obedience to God, because God gave you an instruction and you followed it a certain amount. And uh, I hope you're, you're filling out the card as we talk, okay? Because you're, you're not going to have much time after that. We've got John Bevere in the house. We, we need to get to it. But as you're filling that out, it hit me that there's another question in the passage right after the passage about the widow woman. And the Bible says in, in verse 8 that Elisha went on to a well-to-do woman's house. So we've got a widow woman who needs some money. And Elisha tells her to give. Now we got a well-to-do woman. And she doesn't need any... No, Elisha did not tell her to give. Not one red cent. He just lied and blasphemed the name of the one true God by misusing his word to pimp these people for money. Money. But she has a need that money can't touch. She doesn't have a child. She can't have a child. And I love how after she built a room for Elisha to come stay a little guest quarter, the Bible says that after she did that thing for God's man, Elisha called the woman to himself and he said in verse 13, you've gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? What can be done for you? And, and, and she has a child and... The child dies, but Elisha's awesome, raises her from the dead while God does it through her. But, but the point I wanted to, to make is that there's a juxtaposition in these two passages. There's a woman who doesn't have much money. There's a woman who has a lot of money. They both have a need. In one passage, Elisha says, what do you have? She didn't think she had anything, but she had something. All you have is all God needs to do everything that he wants to do. So for somebody, you could do a $20 gift that would accelerate your life. Go ahead. Unbelievable. This is just blasphemy. I didn't do it. It's just $20. Look at this need. What would that, what would that do? It would do a lot. It would set something in motion in your life. Go on and do it. But for some of you, it, it, it's, it's another need in your life. I've got businessmen in my church, Pastor Phil, who have a child far away from God and, and no amount of earning or no amount of success can bring that child back. But God can do it. And so... It yeah, apparently God won't do it until they, you know, take that money and then, well, give it to Stephen Furtick or, you know, whomever. Isn't it interesting that in the same chapter where Elisha says, what do you have? He asks another woman, what do you want? Those two questions are connected. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I'm not, I'm not a huge offering preacher, so this might be the worst offering of the week on the night I take it. But there's somebody who needed to hear me say that if you've got a need in your life that money can't buy, why don't you stretch your faith to a God who is all-sufficient, who knows all about it? What do you have? And what do you need?
So, so t- yeah, Phil Pringle looks really proud. Yes, yes, yes. We've got a good new televangelist out there, prosperity pimping, taking the offering for us by twisting God's word. Oh, yeah. Stephen Furtick has joined the ranks. Take the card, okay? And if you want to write somewhere on it or just symbolically identify what you need, then take what you have. God, this is a good offering message. And then... No, it's not. And then put what you have and let God do what you need. Yeah, because your miracles can be purchased from God. All you got to do is fill in a, a check and write in the right amount of zeros, and then God will give you what you need. And let's get what you have, even if it seems small, working against what you need that God already knows about. What? Yeah, because you, you see, you got to get that money working against what you need, you know. And the way you do that is by writing a check to the, pre, uh, you know, to Phil Pringle and the Presence Church. This is a con job. Well, you make room for God tonight in this offering to bring something into your life that you need. And and I pray that God would would take this message and apply it to your heart. And I pray that you would support the worthy ministry of this conference and I pray that you would find him pouring out stuff in your life that you could never purchase I remember when Holly and I first hit the tipping point of our giving when we had saved up a $5,000 emergency fund at the beginning of our marriage I was so proud of that emergency fund I was 23 years old $5,000 emergency fund now we're planting the seed in people's minds we need some $5,000 checks just like Stephen Furtick wrote and I saved up $5,000 and the Lord told me to give it and I wrote five $1,000 checks and as soon as I'd written the last one God said I will never allow you to lack for anything you need to do my will if you keep your hands open to me in this way oh yeah see he purchased from God like perpetual uh, wealth and money whenever he needs it now and all it cost him was $5,000 that's how much it cost for that miracle apparently and I've seen God bring me things that money couldn't buy but it started with what I had I did you hear that sentence? I've got many things from God that money couldn't buy, but it started with what I had, money. Buy your miracle. This isn't Christianity. This isn't God the Holy Spirit speaking through Stephen Furtick. That's a different spirit. Everybody stand to your feet real quick. I'll pray for you, and then I'll let him give you the instructions on the offering. Isn't God good? Aren't you grateful that he's put something in your hand, something in your house to give? Come on, get an offering ready. Even if you just have an offering of praise, get it ready. You can offer God that, can't you? Everybody give him something. Father, I thank you that you're going to meet every... Okay, we're done. I'm not going to let him pray. Good night. And by the way, uh, yeah, remember the Kong He thing that we did uh, a couple of days ago? Well, it gets worse. It gets worse. Again, this is uh, thank you to Jake Elliott and his uh, and his yeoman's work in helping to get this stuff to me. It's going to take me a few days to to uh, go through these. You know, we'll probably be having presence conference updates throughout next week. But uh, there was more of this kind of chicanery going on over the presence conference. I think this is from night two. Uh, the uh, this is what uh, is called the Pringle Miracle Offering message. Yeah, the, yeah. You, you want a miracle? Well, you, you need you need a miracle offering. And so this is the, basically, um, well, them preparing people to receive a miracle.
by giving in the offering. Yeah, just listen in. I'm not going to play the whole message. Just kind of give you a you know a taste of what it is the folks there at the presence conference experienced. You know, high pressure sales tactics to write large checks with multiple zeros at the end of it because that's their way of demonstrating they have faith in God and then when God sees you know how much they have they trust him he's going to turn around and provide for them because they're buying their miracles listen in Mighty God why don't you just lift your hands close your eyes God is in this place and I'm telling you this afternoon we're about to enter into a time of miracles Wow, they're going to enter a time of miracles there. Okay. And God wants you to participate. Yeah, see, they're going to they're going to they're going to go into a time of miracles and well, hey, listen, God wants you to participate, you know? So, you know, you don't want to be left behind here, you know, pardon the illusion there. But uh so yeah, you know, you God wants you to participate. So how do you do it? In the miracle. Psalm 46 says be still and know that I am God. I want every person here just to still themselves so that God can speak to you. Because there's people here that have already decided what they're going to give today in, a, in an offering. I really feel like God wants us to get flexible here today. Yeah, you feel like God wants people to get flexible. So, you know, start, you know, stretching out your calves and, you know, maybe do it. Uh. So that we can work with Him towards our miracle so that we can oh yeah so get flexible so you can work with him towards your miracle you need a miracle get flexible what does that mean get ready to write a big check participate in what he wants to do in our lives so let's just take a moment and let god speak to us here today yeah and, and I, apparently god's gonna say write a check a big check a really huge check be flexible participate by your miracle Thank you, Lord. God, I'm praying that you would move powerfully by your spirit this afternoon. That, Lord God, lives would be unlocked. Miracles would be released. Lord God, answers to prayers would be received this afternoon. There'd be supernatural divine healing taking place in people's lives right now, Lord God. Father, there'd be internal, emotional healing taking place right now as we hear your voice. There's a peace that would come upon every single person in this room. Lord God, a peace that surpasses any amount of understanding we may have. Yeah, peace that will make them write a big check. God, we worship you. We worship you. Now you worship money, sir. Ephesians says this. It says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. Yeah, it's funny that Ephesians passage mentions nothing about the tithe. According to the power that is at work in us, to him be the glory. To him be the praise. I felt like God said this. You really you felt God said, said something? Okay. My power active in your life is directly proportional to my praise on your lips. Oh, yeah, so we got a proportional uh, thing going on here. What? So God's power, it's proportional only to what you do. We take a moment here this afternoon. We're going to come, and Pastor Phil's going to lead us. 
into a great time of miracles. Let's just take a moment. To- so Pastor Phil's going to lead them into a time of miracles. Okay. It's God right now. Wherever you find yourself, whatever your situation is, come on, let's lift our voices, clap our hands, let's praise Him this afternoon. Yeah, you got to get everyone whooped up, you know, into the emotional experience so that they'll write a big miracle offering check, you know, because, you know, if you want a miracle from God, you got it, there's got to be a lot of zeros behind whatever that first number is. Thank you, Lord. This afternoon is going to be sensational tonight. It's going to get better. Who's enjoying Presence Conference? And come on, let's thank Pastor Phil and Chris stepping out in God once again to lead us into this place. Thank you. Hey, uh, before Pastor Phil comes this afternoon, uh, we're going to check out a really cool story. Paul and Sally Ann had out. Uh, it's a story. Now watch this. This is a story. That the punchline is this. Okay, you got a couple. They're having a hard time getting pregnant. They're having fertility issues. And all of that came to a, well, came to an end. And they now have two children well, because they wrote a large check at a previous presence conference during the miracle offering segment. Y- y- listen in. Miracles they received through a service just like this, so we're going to throw to it now. We've been married for 19 years this year, and we always wanted children um, from the time we got married. And we started after about four years, we tried to have children, and it wasn't happening. So it took us 10 years to have our son back. And four years, another four years to have our daughter live, who's nine months old. Uh, and during that journey, there were some really good days filled with faith, and there were some really hard days, like, God, where are you? What's happening? But they eventually came, and they're an absolute blessing from God. But it was a long journey. Each time we had a chance, we started with the kingdom of God, and we get children and give them God. These are two miracles. Have to work with faith, sacrifice is part of that working. Every opportunity that we have to give, we always give <laughs> uh, into Billy Hart and into Tyvee. Um, but we felt that your miracle offerings um, were really special for us. We felt like we felt like miracle offerings were really special for us. Yeah, because see, that's a, that helped them overcome their fertility issues. They just write a big enough check, and God said, "Oh, I'm impressed. I think I'll let you have children." Yeah, you take your offering down to the front at the uh, end of the miracle offering. It felt like every step we were taking was basically saying to God, we're still trusting you, we're still believing you that this is going to happen, even though it's been a really long time. And the whole time the the video here is showing shots of the little children, the, you know, the toddler running around and the little nine-month-old little girl crawling around. It's like, oh... Well, look at they got their miracle by uh, by giving a large amount of money at the miracle offering. I, I can have a miracle too. God, God's like a well, you know, is a genius slot machine. He, you know, you just pay the right amount of money, show enough faith, and blammo, you'll get what you need too, miraculously. And all it takes is money. It's a journey of faith, and then all of a sudden, bang! Here comes two miracles from God. So the faithful journey is what it's all about. So in every offering. And you will reap God's promise. 
So sow into the offering and you will reap. Is Paul here this afternoon? You guys here? Yeah, that's Phil Pringle taking the stage. Tell you what, we're going to cut right there. And uh, we'll pick up more of this miracle offering service. We'll have highlights on next week's edition of uh, editions of Fighting for the Faith. That's just to kind of, you know, give you a taste of what's coming. Stephen Furtick has turned into a full-blown prosperity pimp. You know, twisting God's word and priming you know people to give large amounts of money. Uh, he's a, now a good studious student of the uh, of the prosperity pimp known as Phil Pringle down there in Australia. This is not Christianity. You can't buy miracles from God. In fact, Scripture talks specifically about those who would try to buy miracles from God. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn on over to Acts. Acts chapter eight. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you can obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that, to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. These people think they can buy God's gifts, guy, buy, purchase God's miracles. And what's happened here is that Phil Pringle and Kong Hee and John Bevere and Stephen Furtick, well, they've turned themselves into, well, miracle men who can perform miracles or, uh, well, give miracles for a price. 
Just give money to them and God will somehow be impressed. And they can purchase these wonderful gifts of God. But God's mercies and promises can't be purchased. And it shows that, well, Stephen Furtick and Kong Hee and Phil Pringle, well, they're no different, no different than Simon the Sorcerer. In fact, I think Peter's words to Simon the Sorcerer apply perfectly to men like Phil Pringle, Stephen Furtick, and Kong Hee. May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you can obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's right. That's right. It applies. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Our final good Easter sermon, a recommendation from Pastor Charmley. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Now, I have never reviewed a sermon from this gentleman, but I'm going to cue this up formally. This is a recommendation from Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley that I found very good, so I'm excited to pass this along. Now, if you're detecting some kind of, um, well, a preference for uh, when I pr- play a reform sermon, a guy who has a British accent, it's that I have no particular 
predilection for that. Just want to let you know. All right, here we go. Bum, bum, bum. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us for, from a ministry called Time in the Word Ministries from Marble Falls, Texas. Jonathan Hunt presiding. By the way, you can find this on sermonaudio.com if you were to type in time in the word ministries you should be able to find this the name of the sermon is isn't the resurrection just a lie i mean with a title like that you might think there might be some kind of apologetic hook to a sermon with a name like that and so we'll find out Again, this is a strong recommendation from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. So if you don't like it, (laughs) not a good chance of that. But if you don't like it, you know, throw rocks at him, not me. No, don't do that. (laughs) This is a joke. Anyway. All right, let's kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Jonathan Hunt. Isn't the resurrection just a lie? This is based on Matthew chapter 27, verse 64. Here we go. Well, this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and I'm going to read verses 63 and 64. The Pharisees, the priests, gather to Pilate and say, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. It's a unique insight we have into the political intrigues and the worries of the chief priests and the Pharisees following the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. See the way they're speaking. How concerned and anxious they are. This should have been for them a time of great triumph. It should have been their greatest victory for a generation. Because this Jesus of Nazareth, who had been a thorn in their side, who had been followed by endless crowds whilst everyone ignored them, who had previously been the great teachers in Israel, This one who had done things they couldn't explain, who had taught with authority that they couldn't muster, he was finally gone. And they so many times tried to seize him and they failed. And finally, in their minds, he'd been dealt with. And his followers had been scattered. And perhaps they thought things might return to normal. But... There is something troubling them. They are deeply concerned. It seems that they're taking what Jesus said more seriously than many others who heard it, in a sense. He said, after three days, I will rise. And his own disciples don't really seem to have taken it that seriously. But the scribes and Pharisees had been studying Jesus Christ. And they'd heard him teach very many things. 
the words they refer to, he'd actually directed directly at them in uh, Matthew 12. I'll just read those words to you. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They knew very well what he taught. And some people then look at this and they say, oh, three days and three nights? Is that really what happened? If it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, how was that three days and three nights? Well, this is the way um, things were spoken of in uh, Jewish custom. Any part of a day or a night, any part belonging to a particular period, would be reckoned as a day. So the first day of the week was going to be the third day. And the Jewish Talmud, which is a commentary on scripture and tradition, tells us these things. It says, a day and a night makes one season, and a part of a season is as the whole. So they knew what he said, that he was going to die and rise again on the third day. Now, of course, they didn't believe it at all. They didn't believe a word of it. They despised him utterly. You see what they call him here when they go to see um, Pilate. They call him that deceiver. They don't even call him by name. But no doubt they suspected that he would try some kind of trick by pretending to be dead and rising again. Perhaps that's what they thought before. But now he is actually dead, and they know he is dead. They have killed him through the Romans, Now they suspect that it won't be him, but his followers, his disciples, will try some kind of trick to make everyone think that what he said actually came true. But there's a very great rush to what they're doing. They have to get this sorted out because it's Saturday, it's the Sabbath, and tomorrow is the first day of the week, the third day. How can we tell that they were in a a rushed state? Well, because they're breaking all of their own rules. There is no way they should have been doing what they were doing on the Sabbath day. They're so desperate to get these things sorted out that they are riding over the top of their day of rest and it wasn't just any Sabbath, it was a very high one. The day after the preparation it is the Sabbath and they're calling for work to be done. And also note this, that it's the chief priests and the Pharisees together. The chief priests were of the group known as Sadducees, and the Pharisees were a separate group. They constantly bickered and argued with each other, particularly over things like the the general doctrine of the resurrection of the body. One group believed it, the other group didn't. And they constantly argued, and, and there was so much strife, but right now, They're entirely united in this task. They didn't do anything together normally, but they are united in their hatred of Jesus Christ and in their desperation to ensure that nothing happens. You might wonder how it is they can go to Pilate and make him do things. Well, they had considerable influence over Pontius Pilate. He was scared of being known by Rome as the ruler who presided over an uprising in uh, Jerusalem. And 
He was also scared by the idea that a man who had been killed by the authority of Caesar could possibly live again. And so he was always going to agree with what they said. A man who had been killed and had risen again would be untouchable. And the people might rise up against Rome with some unfounded and unknown before confidence. Pilate doesn't want that to happen. And so he readily agrees. Here is a guard. You take these men, you deploy them as you see fit. Do what you have to do. The chief priests and the Pharisees say to him, we've got to do this, otherwise the last deception will be worse than the first. What was the first deception in their minds? It was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And as you know, if you, uh, if you were here on Friday, we were in John chapter 19, That's exactly what was placed over him, the inscription by Pilate. This is the king of the Jews. And how angry they got and said, no, don't write that. Write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate said, no, I've done it. I've written it. I'm not going to change it. God is in absolute command of this situation. And he uses even these men, contrary to everything that they plan, to further verify for all history undeniable fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So many people denied the resurrection of Christ. People who call themselves Christians even do, which really blows my mind. And so many people are perhaps just indifferent to it and think, well, it's just a story. But here are some very simple things, some very simple facts that support the truth of the resurrection. Why is it not a lie, as the Jewish rulers thought, and so many people today think? It's just a story, it's just a lie, it's just a fiction. Well, the first answer is this. It's because the Bible says so. And you might say, well, that's no good to me. But it is always the first answer. We have the inspired and infallible word of God, and it tells us very clearly And as Christians, we are not entitled to pick and choose pieces of the Bible. I like this. I don't like that. We have the whole thing. You either take it all, or you take none of it. It's not our business to pick and choose the bits that we like. We take the whole word of God. All scripture is inspired of God, and is profitable for teaching, for for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. We take it as a whole. Second is this. It's the way in which this history is recorded shows us that these things are true. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But they are not derived from four men, or three men, copying the writing of one man. One man wrote the story and everybody else just copies it down and says, this is my account, this is mine, this is mine. All the Gospel accounts are different. They're not all the same. If you're writing on a, on a clipboard, you might want to take note of that. It's not that all the Gospels are the same. No, they are all different. And yet, they all agree. They all agree. When you lay everything out side by side, or the way in which things are recorded is different, 
the author is different, the perspective is different, and yet all the facts in the end agree. It's a vivid account. Second thing is this, who in this time, this culture, writing a piece of propaganda perhaps, to try and persuade the world that a man had risen from the dead, who on earth would have the tomb, the empty tomb, discovered by women? Nobody would have. You don't want you to get upset and offended, ladies, this morning, but I'm afraid that if you were a woman in those days, your word counted for very little indeed. Who on earth would have done a thing like this? If you wanted to write a propaganda piece, it would all be the word of men and the testimony of men, not the testimony of women. Who would depart in these accounts from what is true of the rest of the whole of the Bible and record nothing from the Old Testament? No quotes from the prophets, nothing else. It's because this is an instant vital recording of an event. It's the oral record written down. Who would write about Jesus having a normal body? That's not the way great propaganda accounts were written. Yes, we know that he, he was uh, changed, but it would have been so tempting if you're writing something false to make him out to be far more glorious in appearance than he was. And if, as people say, this is just a load of late first century propaganda, why is there nothing about the future, nothing about heaven, nothing to make it more inspiring, to bolster it up? Well, it's because it's simply the truth, and it's just an account of what happened. These resurrection accounts are early eyewitness perspectives. Thirdly, look at the early Christian church in all of Scripture in the New Testament. There had been many people, as I'm sure you may know if you've seen various films or comedies, who proclaimed themselves to be messiahs. Perhaps even if you've studied serious history, you know this. Many people set themselves up as leaders of insurrections and rebellions and proclaimed themselves to be messiah. And what happened? Well, of course, they were caught and they were killed and they died. Or they died in battles, fighting against the Romans and other things. And what happened then? Well, nothing, because they were dead. Their followers scattered and they looked for somebody else, another messiah, another leader. What happened in the church? There was no replacement messiah, because messiah had come and had died and had risen again. And they all knew this. They all believed it. There was no tomb that they all worshipped at or venerated because the tomb was empty. Why did the church meet on the first day of the week? Because the Saviour rose from the dead on that day. That's why we still do. And why would so many people suffer and die? And we're not talking about this year or even 500 years ago, although many have. We're talking about people within a lifetime of Christ who suffered and died because they believed that he was risen from the dead. Who on earth would do that if it wasn't true? If you throw away your life on a fairy story, I don't think you would. There is no doubt he was dead. Professional soldiers killed him. The Roman army knew what they were doing. They knew how to kill people as... Um, 
grotesque as that sounds, they knew exactly what they were doing. Professional soldiers guarded him, his body, at the tomb, which was sealed with a Roman seal. There is no doubt that he rose from the dead by the power of Almighty God. The ground quaked like it did when he hung on Calvary's cross. The guards faint and an angel rolls away the stone and he sits there and he speaks to the two Marys who come to the tomb and he says there in chapter 28 verse 5 Do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said. It's all as he said. There's no lie. There's no trick. There's no myth. Simply the sovereign power of God. Jesus Christ as he always has done and always will do, doing exactly what he says. His word is faithful and true. He's no liar. God cannot lie. Every word he spoke was true. And the Bible itself is all our Saviour's word. If we disregard it, then we're doing exactly what the Jewish leaders did. Ignoring the obvious. Ignoring the obvious. Towards the end of chapter 28, verses 11 to 15, you, you, you see what they do when they, once they realise that they have failed. While they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. They failed, but they continued to plot to try and suppress the news of what has happened. It's a ridiculous notion, mind you, that the Roman soldiers slept through their watch. That did not happen. If it did, you would likely pay with your life. You did not fall asleep. This is one of the greatest armies the world had ever seen. And to think that the entire guard fell asleep was utter nonsense. And yet, this is what they said. Well, just, just, just say that you fell asleep and the disciples stole the body while you were asleep. It's ridiculous. There's nowhere to hide when you come to the word of God honestly and with an open mind. The conclusion is clear. It's no lie. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He said in John 10, I mentioned this on Friday, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He is alive. He is alive. And death is conquered. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. He's the conqueror. He's victorious over sin. He suffered and died on Calvary's cross, you know, to pay the price for sin for everyone who believes in him. That's what he did there. He didn't just go to the cross to give us an example of being a, a good man or a, a humble man or anything like that. He went to Calvary to suffer and die and God the Father laid on him the full weight, the penalty, the punishment for sin for all who will ever believe in him. And then he died and he rose from the dead. And because he lives, we can live forever.
It's not just about having some vague hope in our hearts. It's about eternal life. Because he lives, we will live forever. Because he lives, our brother David, who has just gone from us, is more alive than any one of us. How sobering it is to think. He was sat there last Sunday morning and that now he is in the presence of God. It would be awful if Christ has not risen. It would be hopeless. But it is not. He is with Christ. He is alive. He will live forever. One day he will receive a new body as all will who in the last day are with Christ and he will reign with Christ forever. This is the story of the Christian believer from the foundation of the world until its end that we will win in the end because Jesus Christ is the conqueror, the winner, the champion. He's fought and won the fight. Fought the fight, the battle won. Hallelujah. This is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son on Calvary, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, that means be lost forever, be eternally punished in hell, should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Life in the Son of God who lives forever. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, Peace with God, true wisdom and understanding of the world and of life, true forgiveness. And the question is, well, have you repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ? There is no other saviour. There is no one like him. He is absolutely unique. You might say, though, well, why does it matter? Well, Paul writing to the Corinthians said this, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins if there's no resurrection there's no salvation because if he is not risen he is not God and if he is not God then he cannot save you he must be God and man as he said he was as his word says he is as we know he is but if he's not risen he's not God and there's no salvation there's no forgiveness of sins now, a few years ago, there was a very great fuss made over a film that was produced called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. Now, as often happens, this great fuss was whipped up by the media and it died down pretty much as soon as it rose up because there was nothing to it. This film claimed that they had found a tomb in the Jerusalem area with the bones of a man called Jesus and his family. Well, it was nothing to do with Jesus Christ. There were other people called Jesus, of course. Why do I mention it? Well, because the news was full of it, as I said. And as they do on these occasions, they wheeled out some venerable theologian or other to give his tuppence worth on what it was all about. And the news presenter asked him, does the Christian faith collapse under the weight of a supposed tomb of Jesus? And he answered and said, no, and I thought, good. And then he said, because the resurrection is a metaphor. And I thought, 
What a shame. He says, it doesn't matter. The resurrection, a meta- if the resurrection is a metaphor, then we're all wasting our time. We've got no business being here this morning. If it didn't happen, then there's absolutely no point to anything. There's no point to the Christian faith. Whatever. That people can say it doesn't matter? The Bible says, of course it does. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. You won't be saved. There's no eternal life for you. Another man was interviewed and he said something far more useful. He said this, The resurrection is at the core of the faith. It's the bedrock of my understanding of Christianity. Without it, I'm left with an empty philosophy which could be traded for any other philosophy. You got that? Without the resurrection, Christianity is an empty philosophy which could be readily exchanged with any other and there are plenty to choose from. Meaningless without the resurrection. Now even yesterday, I was reading, to bring it up to date, I was reading the Easter message to be given to the Church of Scotland by the moderator of their General Assembly. He is, at the moment, if you like, the most senior man in the Church of Scotland and he's currently in China or something. And you know what he says? He says, it is that sense of hope that emerges from the darkness of a tomb which underpins the faith of the church. That's just a soundbite. But I tell you, it's it's appalling. It is that sense of hope that emerges from the darkness of a tomb? No, it is Jesus Christ that emerges from the darkness of the tomb which gives us hope, living hope, genuine hope, not a feeling, not a, oh, it's, it's, it's spring, the sun is shining, we feel good, new life is coming, we're, 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 we're enlivened to carry on for another year, to keep going. No, it is because Jesus Christ himself is risen from the dead. No metaphor, no lie, no story, but truth. It's such a tragedy to be, to be so blinkered as to think it's all just a lie. You have the truth shown to you so plainly, and then you shrug your shoulders and you carry on with a life of denial. It's not just tragic and foolish, my friends, but I must tell you that to reject the resurrection of Christ is wicked. It's willful. If you see the word of God and you see what God says and the evidence and the proof and you say, no, no, I won't believe it. It's sinful. You're rejecting the truth of God. God himself has died in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to save you from everlasting punishment in hell, he's risen from the dead, and you say, no, no, I'd rather believe what is commonly reported. That's a phrase that's later on in Matthew 28. Even amongst those who claim to be Christians, oh, it's all a a metaphor, the Bible is a a patchwork of myth and and fairy stories and, and, and principles for living, and we just get what we can from it. Utterly pointless, Utterly vacuous, utterly vacant. There's no point, you might as well go home. Waste of time. Don't be deceived. There's only one liar, Satan. He's the father of lies. And he'd love you to believe that Christ is not risen and that there is no hope. But Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. He's faithful and true. 
every other leader of a world religion died. The prophet Muhammad is dead. Buddha, he's dead. Every leader you can think of, of a false religion, they were just men and they died. But Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen. It is not a lie. It's absolute, vital, central truth. And the question for each one of us is, confronted by the truth, what will you do with it? If Jesus Christ is risen, then you must reconsider everything he says, everything he's done, and you must accept that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's all pray together. Amen. Nice. Nice. A little bit of a different type of, uh, of preaching. That was, you know, building an apologetic case, showing that Jesus did rise from the dead, and then, you know, immediately cutting to the idea of what, what's, what does that mean? He's King of Kings, Lord of Lords, crucified for your sins, offering you forgiveness, and it can be trusted. Different kind of sermon from the other sermons we uh, played this week. Still a fantastic proclamation of the Easter Sunday message. Now, that concludes this year's Good Easter Sermons. Next week, we will begin our 2012 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. This is an annual contest that we do here at Fighting for the Faith and believe me, if your pastor shows up as a contestant next week, um, you may want to consider going to a different church. That's all I'm saying. So uh, <laughs> with that, I'm going to sign off. And if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>